Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, a new podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller. And my guest in this programme is Ingrid Taig, who's Professor of History at the University of Denver. Ingrid's most recent book, Animal Companions, looks at the burgeoning phenomenon of pet-keeping in 18th-century Britain, and some of the very vexing issues that it brought with it. A tax on dogs was proposed as a means of actually forcing poor people to give up their dogs, and not just forcing poor people to give up their dogs, but actually forcing the mass extermination of the dog population. The 18th century was when pet-keeping went mainstream. The first recognisable pet shops were set up. The first missing dog ads went in the newspapers. Over the course of the century, pet-keeping went from being seen as a sign of extravagance, sometimes even sinfulness, to being accepted, even celebrated as wholesome and desirable. But the transition, as you'll hear, wasn't always easy and it raised a host of anxieties about race, gender, slavery, sexuality, liberty, and our place in nature. When I spoke to Ingrid on the phone from Denver, I began by asking her to tell me about her realisation that pets offered an excellent way into thinking about all these questions. Well, I've always been interested in cultural history, broadly speaking. That's definitely my primary focus of research. And I've always been interested in the ways in which not just how people behave, but thinking about how they explain what they do and how they talk about their behavior in a way that they think will be persuasive to other people. And as I began exploring more around pets and pet keeping, as I started to think about animals, it became clear to me pretty quickly that although there was very little that people actually wrote directly about pets, there's very little, there are no treatises on how I love my dog, What there were were pets came up again and again in all kinds of very peculiar contexts as ways of thinking and talking about stuff that ostensibly had nothing to do with pets. So tell me about that quest then, you know, to find the pets in the margins or in the, you know, in the decoration in a a print or or in a painting. Is it the case that the more you look, the more you find? Absolutely. One of the wonderful things about this project and one of the great challenges of this project is that in some sense, everything is a source and nothing is a source. The wonderful thing and the challenge about the Pets Project is that you ended up having to look in all kinds of different places, trying to find material where pets were alluded to. So one of my first starting points was natural histories, which uh, very much blended discussions of pets with discussions of other animals, and then all kinds of other areas. And again, as you say, the more you look, the more you see. I found myself unable to go to any art exhibition without 
desperately looking for dogs and cats in the corners and noticing bird cages and uh, and things like that. Um, and suddenly, you know, when you're looking for them, you realize how ubiquitous they are. And I guess most of us, um, the non-specialists, may, you know, be able to think of paintings from the 18th century and and, and remember animals, but we may just think of them as decorative or, or incidental, you know, like a bit of vegetation or whatever. But in fact, from reading your book, they're all highly significant, aren't they? They're, they all carry a lot of meaning. I think that that's true. I think that a lot of times... Obviously, sometimes they are just space fillers. But one of the things that I found interesting was the way in which it became clear, especially when you start to look for patterns across a large amount of work, the way in which they could serve a specific representative function, almost like a shorthand in a visual image where, uh, yes, of course, you know, there's the there's the lapdog there in the picture that says something about this woman as frivolous and fashion obsessed and probably oversexed and a number of other things. And you don't need to do a whole lot of other signaling if you can put the lapdog into the picture. If we take a step back from the art and the representation of the period, I just wanted to ask you a practical question. Clearly, you're not saying that no one had a cat or a dog before the year 1700. (laughs) But conversely, you are saying that something significant is beginning to change and it gathers pace as we go through the, the the 18th century in terms of pet keeping. So if you were to try to to define sort of in practical terms, what, what was it that was happening about British households having pets? One of the most important factors in, in pet keeping that I think it's easy to overlook is simply the fact that in order to keep a pet, you actually have to have the resources to spare to feed an animal that doesn't contribute to your household in some way. And so in some respects, the most important thing that happened over the course of the 18th century is that British people largely stopped starving. And if you stop starving, then you have additional resources to give to animals that are purely companion animals. And similarly, as people became wealthier, they had more space in their houses, they were able to move work animals out of their houses And that, again, creates a differentiated domestic space where you can mark out certain other animals as special, as pets, and bring them back into the house. And so there are some very sort of basic things that have to do with Britain's economic development, its uh, its emergence as an economic powerhouse over the course of the 18th century that really made pet keeping on a large scale possible in a way that it hadn't been before. And that helps mainstream pet keeping from being something that is you know, a vice of the aristocracy to something that uh, becomes identified more and more as just typical and a normal behavior and something that then makes it possible for this to become something that your house isn't complete if you don't have a dog or a cat curled up next to you by the fire. And you mentioned the fact, the the practical fact that people weren't starving. Of course, some people continued to to be very short of, of of means of of having enough to eat. And that plays into a debate which seems to go all the way through the century, and I guess it keeps going into the Victorian era, about whether it was wasteful, whether it was even sinful to be spending money, to be giving resources to an animal when perhaps a family scarcely could feed itself. And certainly there would be people outside who, who couldn't feed themselves at all. Yes, absolutely. And I think actually that's an issue that continues today in some of the ways in which we talk about pets and poor people and whether or not people in financial straits should keep an animal. But that was very much part of the conversation in the 18th century, where again, you might be able to rationalize it, you know, if you're rich enough, you might as well throw your money away on a pet as you do on anything else. But the question for people who were poor became, 
how do you possibly justify keeping a pet when you and your children can barely keep yourselves together? And one of the things that I found really interesting over the course of the 18th century is the fact that the conversation around that changed so that it was abundantly clear, sort of a given at the beginning of the 18th century, that of course poor people couldn't keep pets and shouldn't keep pets. They would either starve themselves and their pets, or the, if you have a dog, that dog is just going to be used for poaching and therefore engaging in criminal activity. But by the end of the 18th century, there's more and more of a recognition that pets serve a valuable emotional purpose for humans and that all people, no matter how poor they are, deserve to own a pet that will love them because that kind of emotional contact with an animal is seen as valuable and in some cases as essential. And that, that question that you've just um, sketched out is seen very clearly in the issue of the licensing of dogs, which rumbles all the way through the century, right up until finally Parliament passes a, a bill in 1796. But the debate about which dogs should be taxed and why really plays out all sorts of um, class questions and those assumptions about whether a dog is actually a, a valid thing for someone to spend money on. Yes, that was one of the, uh, for me, most surprising and fascinating things that I discovered while I was doing research for this book. I'd never really thought about the question of taxing or licensing dogs until I started this project. And then it turned out that um, starting already in the 1730s, there were proposals to tax dogs. And the first proposals were around game law reform, so laws around um, who could hunt and under what circumstances, and were responding primarily to a perception that poaching was a serious problem. And so a tax on dogs was proposed as a means of actually forcing poor people to give up their dogs, and not just forcing poor people to give up their dogs, but actually forcing the mass extermination of the dog population, which was seen as both, it would prevent poaching and it would stop the spread of rabies. So from the people who were proposing this, the goal actually was a dog massacre on a massive nationwide scale that was particularly aimed at poor people with the thought that no poor person should be allowed to have a dog. And what to me was really fascinating was that by the time a dog tax is finally passed in 1796, that debate had turned completely on its head. Nobody was talking about poaching or the game laws anymore. And the debate over the tax on dogs became exclusively about whether or not it was fair to force poor people to give up their dogs. And the arguments against the dog tax were very much along these lines that very often the only comfort in a poor person's life was the companionship of a dog. And who are we to encourage, to force poor people to give up their dogs? Who are we to exterminate dogs on a large scale? This is just fostering cruelty in the population at large. And so when the dog tax finally passes in 1796, poor people are actually explicitly excluded from the tax. So the tax becomes a tax on hunting dogs and on rich people. You had to pay a window tax. It was, you had to have a certain level of income before the dog tax came into play for you. And so the thing that had started out as a means of forcing poor people to give up their dogs actually ended up explicitly protecting the dogs of poor people and instead taxing the dogs of the rich which were seen as the, the real luxury dogs. So it transforms the meaning of a pet from a luxury into a necessity and transforms the notion of the right to own a dog from something that is a frivolous waste of resources into something that is a valuable human experience. Does that 
point to an expansion of human sympathy or that occurs in the 18th century? Or is it, is it more political and pragmatic and taking cognizance of the fact that, that revolutionary France is just across the channel and, <laughs> and perhaps exterminate? Is that, t- is that taking it too far that if there was a mass dog extermination, then insurrection about that and other things might have followed? There certainly was that concern, actually, that, um, that this could create certainly mass unrest And furthermore, that if you actually do encourage people to murder animals on a large scale, that this would coarsen their sentiments and make them more willing to engage in various other kinds of rebellion and violence. So there certainly is a practical and pragmatic element to it. But I think equally important, and one of the things that's really noticeable in the parliamentary debates around the 1796 tax, are the number of MPs who stand up and say I am horrified at the thought of taking a dog away from a poor person. I think that dogs are a necessary and loving component of a family. And of course, poor people deserve to own a dog. And I think that in turn implies a recognition of the possibility of a genuine emotional bond between human and animal. Even though I think it's certainly true such bonds existed prior to the 18th century, I don't think that they were acknowledged in the way that they were by the end of the 19th century as not uh, misplaced affection, but genuine, true affection, and an affection that was reciprocal. So I think part of what's really remarkable about the ways in which pet keeping transforms attitudes toward animals is that by the end of the 18th century, People agree that not only can humans love animals, and that's a good thing, but that at least in some cases, animals can love humans back. And that that uh, is a recognition of animal subjectivity and animal emotion that I think really is new in the 18th century and very much still with us today. Now, we've talked mainly about dogs, I guess, and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, for good reason, perhaps, because they're found across all levels of society, but signify different things in different um, situations. But anyone who reads your book and looks at the illustrations and reads some of the, the letters that you quote will, I think, be quite struck by the prevalence of monkeys. Now, that's, that's quite a difference between the 18th century and now, that monkeys figure quite largely. What kind of issues do they raise for wider society? I think monkeys are particularly interesting and were interesting to 18th century people, especially because of their resemblance to humans. It's one of the things that as humans, we look for creatures who remind us of ourselves and monkeys are the most dramatic example of a species that seems to be adjacent to humanity and yet at the same time clearly are not people. And so I think monkeys served a number of purposes. For one thing, because they were imported from exotic locales, they could serve as a status symbol. They were expensive, and so being able to afford one was unusual. Because they needed to be chained up and kept under control, and at the same time looked so much like humans, they became the most clear analogs for human slaves, and therefore became a really critical way for people to think about the relationship between keeping animals and keeping slaves and the question about whether or not it was ever acceptable to keep a living creature, human or animal, in captivity and as a piece of property. That was particularly significant and important for 18th century people. And then also because they so closely resembled humans, monkeys became particularly useful in things like satires where they could be used to ape human behaviors 
and to point up some of the ways in which human behavior was seen as ridiculous. So one of the running visual themes of the 18th century are comparisons between what would then be called fops or bows or dandies and monkeys, the idea of preening ridiculous men engaged in fashionable behavior where you would show a monkey engaging in similar behavior and suggest that both the man and the monkey had the same level of intellect and the same level of engagement with the world. And the 18th century was clearly very exercised by this question of where boundary lines are drawn, both between the human and the non-human, and also the implications between what they would have seen as civilised and non-civilised races. And the implications for those are, are legion, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. One of the things that I think had a really dramatic effect on the 18th century was that this was the period in which the humanoid apes, the orangutan and the chimpanzee, were discovered by Europeans for the first time. They didn't yet have a clear distinction between the chimpanzee and the orangutan, so for them there was just sort of one basic humanoid ape. But the question became, well, is this a human or is this an ape? They very much raised the question about where humanity humanity ends and animal life begins because they so very, very closely seemed to resemble human beings. And that, in turn, raised all kinds of other anxieties where if you try and draw a boundary that sharply defines humans against apes, that has the advantage of maintaining human superiority over the rest of creation, which was most people's top priority. But at the same time, if you go in that direction, that then raises the question of how do you then differentiate among human races? How do you, for example, justify the enslavement of African peoples if, in fact, what really matters is the commonality of all humans in comparison to all animals? How do you, again, treat a human being as property if the thing that is most important is the stuff that you have in common with other races rather than the things that distinguish you from other races. And that gets some thinkers and writers tied in all sorts of logical knots, doesn't it? And it seemed to me the prevailing response tended to be a sort of benign, enlightened paternalism of sort of knowing best, of being, of being the owner, either of the slave or of the animal, but treating it in a way that accorded with sort of Christian virtues. Yes, I think one of the things that you see in discussions of both pets and slaves is a sense that we have to recognize from the 18th century point of view that enslavement ownership was essential. Almost no one in the 18th century wanted to come to terms with the idea of complete abolition of slavery or the complete liberation of animals from human ownership. In both cases, there was a sense that economic necessity required ownership of both humans and animals. But then you look and you say, well, how is this not tyranny? How is the practice of the enslavement of either animals or humans not terrible for both the slave and the owner? And the solution then becomes, well, if I treat my slave or my servant or my pet well, then this will create a comfortable life, a comfortable existence for the slave or the pet, and I can help them gain the benefits of my own civilization through contact with me. The idea that a domesticated animal is better than an animal in the wild, a domesticated dog is better than a wild dog, 
And similarly, a slave who is well-treated might be better off in this way of thinking than an uncivilized savage in the wilds of Africa. And again, obviously, this is not a view that I would endorse, but I think it does help show the ways in which people would sort of think themselves into a bind when they're trying to celebrate liberty and rationality and the glory of all of humanity, and then find themselves facing the actual reality of inequality and slavery. Ingrid, I, I thought it was fascinating the way your book charts various shifts throughout the century. And I found the analysis of, of illustrations particularly intriguing. And I wanted to pick out two of them and talk about them a little bit in turn. And the first one is a picture of two girls dressing a kitten. If a casual observer were to see it, they might just think, oh, here's a picture of some well-off young women all dressed up and they're, they're playing with a kitten and they've abandoned the doll. But once, once I'd read your um, analysis of it, I could see there's a lot more going on there and there's a, a lot more that's, that's potentially disturbing going on. Can you talk a little bit about that picture and what you think it was signifying? Sure. It's interesting to me that painting is at Kenwood House, and according to Kenwood House, it's one of their most popular paintings. People love to have postcards of it. It's seen as an adorable picture of two little girls playing with a kitten, and that's how it is widely perceived. But one of the things that I think is really fascinating about it is the way in which it takes notions of what girlhood means and what relations between humans and animals mean, and create something that ends up being much more complex than I would actually argue kind of disturbing. It shows, it's a painting by Joseph Wright of Darby, and it shows the girls illuminated by candlelight. It's classic Wright in that sense of a painting that deals with dramatic contrasts of light and darkness. And in the center of the painting, the girls are holding up a kitten, attempting to put clothes on the kitten. The kitten is clearly presented as a male kitten. Its tail is between the legs in, I think, what is clearly a, a phallic gesture. And so the girls are already sort of violating gender boundaries by dressing it up as if they would dress up a little girl. They're putting a bonnet and a dress on it. And next to the kitten lies a doll that they have abandoned, and the doll skirts are up around its waist. Again, I think there's a, a sexualizing element here. And then the girls themselves are dressed in very similar clothes to the way in which the kitten is dressed. And so the picture visually creates a connection between the girls and the kitten. And by having one of the girls in the painting look directly out at the viewer, there's also a violation of traditional feminine decorum. So on the one hand, we have this picture that might seem to be complete innocence of two girls playing with a kitten. And on the other hand, what we see are a number of violations of boundaries. We have the violation of feminine decorum. We have the violation of gender norms by dressing a male kitten in girls' outfits. And of course, we have that basic violation of the boundary between human and animal as the girls attempt to move the kitten into the realm of the human by putting it into clothes. And that association between girls and pets and a kind of a, an inability on the part of girls and women to distinguish between proper human animal boundaries is a recurring theme in 18th century thinking about pets. Yeah, it's a kind of displacement or even misplacement of attention or affection or resources that were deemed to be more properly attributed elsewhere, weren't they? Exactly. So again, there's this notion that 
one of the things that girls and women are sort of incapable of doing is moderating their affections or channeling their affections and their resources into the proper venues. So in this case, again, rather than thinking about their role within the household, thinking about their roles as girls, they don't seem to be able to distinguish between themselves and animals. And it creates a sort of vision of the girls themselves as animalistic in some way. It links them so strongly with the natural world that it sort of moves them out of the realm of humanity. If I were to ask, what do you think it was that was shifting? We already talked about the, the dog licensing illustrating the fact that it was it was by by the end of the century it was deemed legitimate for a poor person to love their dog and for that affection to be entirely sanctioned. So what was it that was shifting in the course of the, the latter part of the century that that also means that when we when we um we'll we'll talk about a Gainsborough in a minute, but this relationship between humans and animals was felt to be more comfortable than it had been when Joseph Wright was painting his painting. I think one of the things that matters uh, really does have to do with simply the growing number of people who kept pets. That in some ways, growing exposure to pets and pet keeping and to more and more people who have pets creates a situation in which it becomes much more difficult to demonize it, right? If you if you know someone who's engaging in the practice and you like that person, it, it becomes much more difficult to say that all pet keeping is, is a terrible thing. So there is that basic element there. What's more important, I think, are uh, changing attitudes toward the natural world as Britain expands across the world in its empire as it becomes more victorious in other nations. That creates a growing sense of confidence and a sense of the ability to conquer not just people, but the natural world itself. And the natural world then becomes much less threatening. And this is something a number of scholars have talked about as one of the characteristics of the Enlightenment is an interest in the natural world and a growing willingness to see humans' relationship with nature as benevolent rather than threatening. So that's one issue. The other thing, and I think is really important, is the emergence, especially in the last decades of the 18th century, of the twin ideas of sympathy and sensibility. Sympathy is an idea articulated um, most famously by Adam Smith, actually, in which he talks about sympathy in the way that we would often use the, the word empathy. So sympathy for Smith and his contemporaries is the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes to imagine the world from their point of view and create, therefore, a real connection with that person by being able to see the world from their point of view. And that idea gradually gets spread out into thinking about actually being able to engage with non-human animals in the same way, the idea that you might be able to see the world from their point of view and engage with them and make a connection with them, just as they might be able to make that connection with you. And finally, you see the emergence of the culture of sensibility, which valorizes a lot of practices that before that had been seen as dangerous or untrustworthy, and that were particularly, again, associated with women. So this idea of a direct expression of emotions, an emphasis on feeling and the physical expression of feeling as an unmediated way to understand someone's heart and soul, a valorization of emotion over reason that had not existed before. And all of those things, again, I think, become an important way for people to see the possibility of a connection with animals that isn't a rational connection, it's not one through reason, but that can then become seen as an important and valuable experience. And that's what I think you start to see in those debates around the dog tax and things like that is this idea of even though a poor person can't 
necessarily afford a lot of resources, that emotional connection is extremely valuable and something that we need to honor just as much as we would honor other kinds of necessities of life like material survival. So the second painting that I, I wanted to, to talk about exemplifies that shift that you've just been mentioning. And it's by Gainsborough. And it's a picture of a, an aristocrat and his dog. And I, I, I even wrote down the sentence that, that sort of really stuck in my mind. You said, by the end of the century, celebrating the bond between a man and his dog had become the norm. And by goodness, this painting celebrates it, doesn't it? Can you, for, for someone who may not have seen it or may not have it in front of them, can you say what's, what's in the painting and what you think is going on behind the scenes? Sure. Uh, this is one of my favorite paintings. And this is, in many respects, when I saw this painting, I, I had a vision of the entire book once I actually saw this. It's Thomas Gainsborough's painting of Henry III, Duke of Buccleuch from 1771. And it is in some respects, a classic Gainsborough portrait. It's an aristocrat sitting in a sort of a wilderness. But the thing that is most distinctive about it is that he has with him his dog. And there is very clearly portrayed in this portrait an emotional connection between man and dog. The Duke is uh, seated on a kind of hillock, and seated next to him is his dog. And the dog is a very fuzzy spaniel. So the Duke and the dog to have basically the same haircut. Um, and the Duke <laughs> has his arms around his dog, and the dog has one of his paws over the Duke's arm. And so they are in what is clearly a very warm and affectionate embrace. And the dog is almost on the same level as the Duke. So he's not at the Duke's feet. They are presented as not just affectionate, but affectionate and equal, I think, in this picture. And each one of them is portrayed as having... Uh, what you might see as a set of individual consciousness. So the Duke looks out at the viewer, the dog also looks out at the painting, but isn't looking at the viewer, he's looking off at something else that he sees that has caught his attention. And so you get a sense here of the personality of the Duke, but you also get a sense of the personality of his dog. So they are two individuals with clear individual personalities. But the point of the painting, I think, is to emphasize that strong emotional bond, that genuine friendship between the Duke and his dog. So it is legitimated by being the subject of a painting and is individuated in a way that the monkeys we talked about earlier and the satirical prints, they were, they were allegorical rather than real monkeys with um, their personalities being portrayed. But exactly. that's, that's, that's changed by the time we get to his dog. Yes, and I don't think that there's any question here that this is a real dog and that this is the Duke's real dog. It is abundantly clear that there is an interest on Gainsborough's part in capturing what 18th century people would call a true likeness of both man and dog. And likeness in this context means not just getting the physical depiction correct, but getting a sense of the individual personality behind the physical characteristics across. And I think Gainsborough is really committed to doing that for both the man and his dog. And he does it in a way that does not at all undermine the Duke's status as an elite man and a masculine figure. I think what's fascinating about this in many ways is that that emotional bond is not seen as somehow making the Duke effeminate or reducing his status in any way. If anything, it is a way of confirming his status as a gentleman, that he has this kind of relationship. The Duke's aristocratic qualities are very clearly presented in this painting. And yet, at the same time, there doesn't seem to be any sense of 
conflict or contrast between that status and the way in which he clearly loves his dog. And it's not without a, a sense of humour, but it doesn't have any mockery to it. And that, that, I guess, is a big difference from a lot of the Im- images earlier in the book. Exactly. It's an extremely affectionate portrait. I do think that Gainsborough is playing a little bit of this notion that we sometimes talk about of the owner resembling their pet. I do think that there is, that there is a little bit of that going on here. But it is clearly, it is not at all mocking the Duke. I think it, it is coming from a place of warmth and affection. And we know that Gainsborough painted other portraits of animals, painted other portraits of both his pets and his friends and his friends' pets. And so I think Gainsborough was very much taking this relationship seriously, again, not without a sense of humor here, but I think one that comes from a place of warmth and affection rather than satire and mockery. It's maybe paradoxical. You talk about the the shift in sensibility and attitudes to animals in the course of the 18th century. And yet, the actual material lot of the animals didn't really change very much. They were still chained, they were still caged, they were still beaten. Is it your sort of thinking that the attitudes had to had to change first and gradually before there would actually be any real material improvement? I think you say there was no animal protection legislation until quite well into the, the 19th century. Yes, I do think that in many respects, practice doesn't necessarily keep up with rhetoric. And so I think part of what we are seeing here is there are some people for whom this is incredibly important and some people for whom the rhetoric becomes very important, but the behavior perhaps is less important. So being seen to care about animals for a while there, I think was more important than actually caring about animals. I think there were also um, pretty significant distinctions between the way that people treated certain privileged animals and the way that they treated, pets being the most obvious example of the privileged animals, and the way that they treated livestock, working animals, in other kinds of contexts. Again, I think that's a, that is a distinction that we see today, the way we treat pets versus the way factory farmed animals are treated uh, is pretty significant. But I also think that for some people, they really were trying to live by these principles. And I think some of the things that we might see as particularly clear examples of ongoing patterns of abuse, for example, even animal lovers beat their dogs in this period. Uh, I think it's worth keeping in mind the specific context. This is also a period in which people beat their children on a regular basis. And so what might seem to us to be sort of strikingly shocking behavior in the particular context of the 18th century, I think seems somewhat less shocking when it is, again, I am not supporting here beating either children or animals, Um, (laughs) um, but there wouldn't necessarily have been such a strong contrast there in the way that we might see it today. I was talking to Ingrid Taig about her book, Animal Companions, Pets and Social Change in 18th Century Britain which is out in paperback this month from Penn State University Press. You can find out more about it on the Penn State website. Do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. And if you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe to the programme on iTunes, where you can catch up on any interviews you've missed. There are all sorts of good things coming up in the weeks ahead, including Greg Garrett on the wisdom of the zombie apocalypse, and Monica Matfeld and Karen Raber on performing animals. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.